welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome, Isham Nation, to the Process This Podcast. This is episode 26. Today on the show, we have the segment, Mailbox Mania, followed by the conclusion of our talk with Peggy Spitzer from Sertal, discussing all things related to chemicals. It's a great show, so let's get started with Mailbox Mania. Today in this segment of Mailbox Mania, we're taking a look at the September-October 2020, Volume 54, Issue Number 5 of the BINT, that's Biomedical Instrumentation and Technology Publication by Amy. Now the first article we're going to look at today is titled, Overcoming Human Factors Challenges of Endoscope Culturing with Turbulent Fluid Flow. So this article reads, The life-saving diagnosis and procedures performed with endoscopes are a vital part of modern healthcare. However, endoscopes are difficult to clean, particularly because of the persistence of biofilms. This creates a unique challenge for manufacturers, healthcare facilities, sterile processing departments, and regulatory agencies seeking to ensure these complex devices are processed and stored safely and responsibly. Now, this analysis reviews current studies of endoscope processing, focusing on persistent problems with human factors created by current cleaning and sampling methods. It also looks at cleaning verification, highlights the academic call to include microbial surveillance as a necessary task, and identifies the emerging technology of turbulent flow fluid, or TFF, that may help to fill the gaps in this area. From a human factors perspective, endoscope processing is demanding for all staff in sterile processing. It can be labor-intensive, physically taxing, and mentally demanding, requiring manual strength and dexterity, fine motor work, repetitive motion, and memorization of tasks that must be performed in sequence. It can also involve exposure to potentially harmful cleaning solutions, sterilization gases, and require the use of personal protective equipment throughout the work shift. Now the article goes on to talk about human factor studies and the results which illustrate the difficulty of learning the many, many steps involved in endoscope reprocessing, as well as the human factor challenges of performing these tasks quickly, in the proper sequence, and repeatedly throughout the day. Now this article briefly reviews those key steps or key tasks involved in endoscope reprocessing, which we're all familiar with, uh, which is pre-cleaning, leak testing, manual cleaning, high-level disinfection or sterilization, uh, rinsing, and then drying and storage. So the article will have some more information to say about those categories, but then it starts discussing the use of this turbulent fluid flow as a method for sampling and cleaning. So if you're like me, you're asking, what the heck is turbulent flow fluid? Well, here we go. TFF, or turbulent flow fluid technology, 
is a closed loose system developed for sampling extracting of lumen medical devices. So this technology uh, is a new method that can be used to collect samples for cleaning verification, microbial surveillance of endoscopes. What it does is it uses a mixture of air under pressure with sterile water. Now this mixture is passed through the endoscope channel at a predetermined flow rate. The turbulent flow creates shear force with pressure and water movement, thereby making bubbles and droplets of random size. So the water, those droplets, under that high variable velocity, impact the inner surface of the channel, thereby removing the adhere contaminants. So again, TFF is produced by this apparatus that mixes the incoming regulated compressed air and sterile water, generating that turbulent mixture into the phases. So interesting concept here. Uh, the article also contains a comparison table for the extraction efficiency. Again, this is an interesting article using automation for culturing, sampling, and cleaning, and removing that human component in the reprocessing. So if you want to know more about this uh, process, about the TFF, go ahead and check out this article. Again, it's in the BINT. So let's move on to our next article, and it will be the last article for today. It's going to talk about HVAC systems. So it's titled HVAC and Infection Prevention Considerations in the Sterile Processing Department. One important system to consider in sterile processing departments, SPD, is the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, commonly known as the HVAC system, serving those spaces. In addition to providing thermal comfort and relative indoor air quality for occupants, the HVAC system can support or hinder infection prevention objectives in sterile processing. So a wide variety of conditions exist in sterile processing depending on your facility nationwide. You know, in addition, there's these rules. We have codes and standards and things that we have to do that differ from state to state and facility to facility. Compliance with the rules, which take effect at the time of construction or renovation of the HVAC system, is intended to support the proper design, installation, and operation of the building and its systems. All right, so the article goes on to say that uh, once commissioned and occupied, the building and associated systems take on a life of their own, requiring a life cycle, oversight, maintenance, and support. So this article on HVAC and infection prevention considerations and sterile processing focuses really on a two-room setup uh, with a designated dirty side and a designated clean side. So rather than being a comprehensive guide for maintenance of HVAC systems and sterile processing, uh, this specific article is intended to highlight some considerations uh, really from an industrial hygiene perspective. So this article goes on to talk about three specific components of the HVAC system, the air handling unit or the APU, ductwork, and then room pressurization. So the article makes an interesting statement. Solely monitoring the temperature and humidity in sterile processing and the associated ductwork itself may not adequately represent the conditions in the room or in microclimates within the given room. So then the article asks a few questions. Is the air within the room properly mixed with sufficient air exchanges? To what extent does steam, condensation runoff, or hot spots from equipment affect the temperature and humidity? 
Is the air being supplied by the APU clean enough? Does intrusion or ponding of water and associated microbial growth occur near the intake? And then last are exit fans within close proximity to the air intake. So like I said, this article goes on to talk uh, a little more about the APU, the ductwork in the system, and room pressurization. At the conclusion of this article, the article states that HVAC systems in sterile processing have the potential to undermine infection prevention objectives. With microbial growth and the downstream potential for hospital-acquired infections can be minimized through consistent and effective monitoring and maintenance of HVAC systems in sterile processing and adjacent spaces. So that's a great article. I recommend that you check this one out to learn just a little bit more about HVAC systems and sterile processing because it's just it's a little bit more than just recording temperatures and humidities. Right? There's a whole lot more to it. So check out this article. It has great information. So you can find this article and other articles that involve sterile processing in the BINT, and that comes from Amy. So with that, that's going to do it for this segment of Mailbox Mania. Our guest speaker today works for the fine folks at Sertal International. Sertal is a leading manufacturer of disinfectants, detergents, and other products used by numerous healthcare facilities at point of use and in sterile processing. Sertal's mission is to manufacture the highest quality products and promote industry best practices through education. So visit Sertal at Sertal.com, C-E-R-T-O-L.com. Peggy Spitzer is a Colorado native with over 30 years of combined experience as a healthcare provider and educator. She is a licensed dental hygienist with a bachelor's and master's degree in adult education. She was a full-time college faculty for over 20 years and managed several large clinics. Currently, she is a clinical education manager at Sertal International, a manufacturer of detergents and disinfectants for healthcare. She develops and presents in-services and education programs to hospitals and dental professional groups focusing on infection prevention, instrument processing, and best practices for chemicals. Peggy is an infection control consultant for the Colorado State Dental Board and a subject matter expert in infection control for a national testing agency. Peggy is the past president, past secretary, and current treasurer of the Rocky Mountain Central Service Isham Chapter, promoting education and certification for sterile processing professionals. Welcome back to the show, Peggy. Let's get started where we left off last. How does water temperature affect different solutions? So water in general has uh, a tremendous effect on the cleaning process in, in many ways. The quality of the water, the water temperature, uh, how you are diluting the product, the type of water you're diluting with. Uh, so water temperature itself can be extremely important. And this is true, I think if there's a misnomer that water temperature is only important for enzymatic detergents. 
This is not true. Water temperature is really important for the manual cleaning and soaking process because the very first thing the tech needs to make sure is that the water is not too hot. Water that's uh, getting uh, close to 120 degrees, say 110 to 120 degrees, is actually getting hot enough to coagulate or denature these blood proteins and then make them stick harder, make it difficult to actually clean the item. No matter what the detergent is, the water temperature should be monitored uh, just for this uh, very first reason, to make sure it's not too hot. And then every product, enzymatic or not, will typically have some type of directions on there recommending some sort of temperature range. And so even if it's a range, you may not need to hit a specific temperature, but you should still try to monitor to make sure that you're in, in somewhere in that range of appropriate temperature uh, for the product. All right, so you touched on the water quality just a second ago. Can you explain how water quality can affect the effectiveness of enzymatics or detergent solutions? Yes, John. Uh, again, another very complex topic uh, that certainly deserves its own podcast. Uh, <laughs> but just touching on it briefly, uh, water quality is, you know, usually what we think of with water quality for cleaning is we're thinking about hard water, total dissolved solids, uh, TDS, calcium content, that sort of thing, that affects water, uh, affects the cleaning process because hard water makes it harder for a detergent to work. It's a good way to remember it. Hard water makes cleaning harder. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yes, if you have really, if you know you have harder water, uh, and I'm going to say roughly o- over 200 uh, parts per million, you may have some other more accurate tests at your facility, but uh, if they've told you that you have hard water, that may create a situation where you do have to dose your detergent a little bit higher. The detergent components will bind with some of the calcium content and other minerals in hard water. And once the detergent's bound to those minerals, then that leaves um, less of it to actually tackle soils. So that's how hard water can affect cleaning. Um, and of course, as we all know, hard water really affects rinsing and creating those spots, uh, those annoying spots. So rinse water quality can certainly be an issue depending on where you're at, uh, even for manual cleaning. You know, we certainly is, know it's a big deal for the washer and that we want to have that RO or DI water, uh, higher quality water for that final rinse. But the other aspect of water quality, I I probably can't get into in too much detail, but a facility does need to be aware of this, is the issue about having uh, contaminated water. And this is biological quality. So endotoxin, um, higher levels of bacteria in the water, et cetera. So uh, a facility, including a hospital, can certainly be the victim of contaminated water even though they're getting uh, so-called treated water from uh, the city, they still need to be checking uh, that water quality, certainly not only for hardness, but also for bacterial quality. So I got I to gotta tell a story on myself. So back when I was a scrub tech, I used to sometimes go in and clean some my own instruments for a turnover, and I would use enzymatic solution, and I would just pour into a sink not measure the water. I would just pour that enzymatic into the sink until it kind of smelled good. So I didn't measure. Can you explain why using correct dilution rates for a particular solution is important? A good, good example, John. And I will, uh, to help you feel a little better, uh, this is still unfortunately a very common occurrence. <laughs> 
And and it I'm sorry, but I've done it myself. I do it at home. I know better, and I still put too much detergent in the sink when I'm washing dishes. <laughs> I like the suds. Is that safe? No. So, <laughs> so the very first thing, uh, certainly, we both want to reinforce is it's just super important to follow the directions on the chemical label. Your chemical label is your IFU for the chemical. Uh, manufacturers may issue other additional bulletins in addition to the label, but the label is always your basic IFU for the chemical. Follow the dosing instructions. Good companies test their products using objective test processes and, and cleaning tests, and that's how they establish the dosing. Now, the dosing can vary, and you'll typically see a range on a label, and that range is there because of what we talked about earlier about water quality. Uh, it can also vary, dosing can also vary based on soil load. So it's certainly legitimate to use a little bit more or a little bit less based on your water quality, your soil load, even the cleaning process. If you're doing manual cleaning, uh, there's less impingement, there's less force. So you may use a little bit more chemical during manual cleaning and a little bit less when you have a well-functioning washer with a good impingement, good pressure. So all those things are factors into dosing. Here's the issue with overdosing. Overdosing is so tempting. Uh, I have a little story myself, John, and that is a facility, a, a wonderful, very good hospital, big facility, excellent quality facility. We went into the department. There was a technician trying out uh, one of our products. We just saw the sink with these billowing suds, and the technician was adding more and more product into the sink. And the department manager and I kind of rushed up to him and we said, you know, what are you doing? And he said, well, I, he said, I really like the suds, but this product doesn't suds very well. I have to keep adding more and more. <laughs> and we had to stop him. We said, no, it's not supposed to suds. It's supposed to be very low suds. <laughs> That's why it doesn't foam up. <laughs> but, you know, bless his heart, he was trying to do the right thing. To him, suds equal cleaning. And that is not really uh, a good practice anymore. We want uh, lower suds. We want to be able to see down into the sink when we do manual cleaning. We want products in the washer that have minimal to low sudsing to allow a good spin action. So this is another reason why the dosing is so important. Follow the dosing. And then finally, the other issue is if you overdose, uh, and this is really all products, but uh, certainly enzymatics can be uh, one of the ones you really have to watch out for, is if you overdose, it makes it harder to rinse off. You must get these detergent residues off as much as possible, and especially if it's manual washing and you're not going to be doing an additional step, manual washing is the end of the cleaning step, then you're rinsing after manual cleaning needs to be very thorough. Great. And that kind of brings me to my next point. Should users really rinse off that enzymatic solution after use? And I, I got an example. A technician just removed gross debris from a basic set using an enzymatic solution. And now the set's going to sit on that washer disinfector rack until that rack is full and ready to enter the washer. Now, should we be rinsing that enzymatic solution off? That's another excellent question, John, that is uh, somewhat complicated. So <laughs> there's, uh, there's that issue about do you have to get every speck of chemical off before you start another process that could involve maybe a different brand of chemicals or, or really different chemicals. 
There's also the issue of how long are these items going to be sitting there on the rack? And this is a very practical example that you've given, John. Very practical. This is a a real-life issue uh, people deal with every day. Uh, Sometimes uh, everybody's slammed, and there's no waiting. I mean, stuff's just zipping in and out. But sometimes, you know, it just there's a slow period, and items will get uh, hand-washed uh, promptly. This is so important. And then they'll end up kind of sitting on the rack for a while before they, they actually enter the washer. So I will repeat what I said earlier. If you're doing manual cleaning and manual rinsing, and there's not going to be another step, there's not going to be a washer, uh, you're done with the cleaning, then the rinsing is super important, and it must be thorough, and it must be complete. Uh, flush those cannulas, clean uh, and rinse every area, open those box locks. If the item is going to be sitting on a rack and it's going to be going through the washer, uh, keep in mind that your washer basically is probably going to have a pre-rinse or other type of cycle at the beginning that has no chemicals in it. That pre-rinse will typically remove detergent residues that may be on that item. On the other hand, if you don't rinse at all, uh, you've also probably left some residual soil along with the detergent. So now you've got extra soils and extra detergent that may have, you know, hardened or dried out a little bit before the washer can do its job. And of course, then the bed inhibits the full cleaning of the item. So I guess I have to go back to, you know, how heavily soiled were the items? Were you doing the manual washing and at least, at least some rinsing? before you put those items on the rack, knowing that they may sit there for a while. And I, when I say a while, not more than an hour or so before they go into the washer. If you're going to have a really long delay over an hour or two, and I realize that can happen uh, before you have a, a, a load, a sufficient load, I think the rinsing needs to be more thorough. From your experience, what are some common errors you see when you work with different facilities? So here are some errors that I've actually seen. Uh, these are, are true, uh, real errors uh, that we've seen and, and in top-notch facilities. These are facilities that are well-organized, uh, basically, by and large, doing the right thing. Uh, we're not talking about departments or facilities that don't have a good basic process. So I will say that these are common errors, and we're talking pretty much about chemical use and basically cleaning chemicals here. The number one error that I see is that a facility that is the techs, the regular techs, uh, and, and I'm sorry to say managers too, <laughs> not knowing what chemicals they are using. They, they literally have no idea. They know it's the green stuff or, well, we've had it forever. It's mm-hmm. over there on the sink. Not knowing what chemicals they're using and further not knowing what chemicals they're using for a specific application. Sometimes they don't even realize that they're actually using a disinfectant as a cleaner or vice versa. So that's number one, not knowing what chemicals they're using. Number two, a uh, very common error, and I realize that this one's more complicated. They have not taken the step of matching up the chemical with the instrument or device IFU. So, for example, they may be using an alkaline detergent on a device or instrument that clearly states that they should only be using neutral pH detergent. It's a very common error. Alkaline detergents are great. and Boy, they're powerful cleaners, but they can really wreak havoc on certain types of metals. Not checking that the chemicals and the pH are correct for that device or instrument. 
That's number two. And number three, and I'm sorry to say I've seen this in more than one place, and that is having the wrong chemical hooked up to a automated device, washer, cart washer, and typically going into the wrong cycle. Mm. So over time, you know, even though it may have been set up correctly originally, um, there's turnover, people are in a hurry, and the wrong chemicals get hooked up to the wrong cycles. This, of course, can be very dangerous. Finally, another common error is not understanding the difference between shelf life and use life of a chemical. And I'm sorry to say that sometimes during surveys, people are asked this question. I, and I get this question the first time I got it, I was very confused, in which someone called and said, after we open our detergent, how long can we use it? And that question came directly from a surveyor who had asked them why they didn't have their detergent bottle labeled with the date that it was opened. This is a misunderstanding because chemicals that are high-level disinfectants, uh, most certainly many of them do require that they be labeled with the date that they're opened because that will affect their use life. But that's not the case for the majority of detergents. Detergents basically are used when stored, you know, and capped properly uh, until they expire. There is no special thing that happens when you open them. You know, it came from a survey, so they, they were concerned and they didn't understand that. So I'll repeat it again, the, the difference between shelf life and use life. Shelf life is what's stamped on the bottle, and that's the expiration date of the product. And especially this is uh, true for detergents. Use life is after the product is diluted or otherwise put into a pan or diluted in some form. So use life of something may be as short as an hour or uh, maybe not more than overnight. It, it depends on the product. So shelf life is expiration. Use life is typically after it's diluted. So last question, Peggy. What are some resources listeners can use that can help explain how to select and use chemicals and disinfectants in sterile processing? Well, we, we've already talked about several basic resources, which would be certainly the instructions for cleaning that go with your devices and instruments. So have those on hand and, and index them and make sure that you understand what chemicals you can and can't use. So that would be number one is the instructions for use for each device or instrument. The second resource is the safety data sheets for all your chemicals. Make sure you have them. Um, force yourself to read them <laughs> at least <laughs> once <laughs> and, and know what you have. Yes. So those are the two basic resources. Then the next place I would turn is that many facilities now have uh, ST79, and they try to keep up with the newest additions. So in ST79 2017, so 2017, uh, that edition of Amy ST79, there is an Annex E. This Annex E is right there in your document. You've paid for it, and it's called Selection and Use of Chemical Disinfectants. This is an excellent annex. I would, again, force yourself to read it, and then <laughs> have somebody else help you read it again, and, and then figure out, you know, maybe bit by bit, not the whole thing, but go through and use it like a checklist and say, okay, yeah, we're doing this. Yes, we're doing this. If you tackle it paragraph by paragraph, I think it's less intimidating than trying to look at the whole document. So that's a very good one, Annex E. And most people have it because they already have SC79. There are two other documents, uh, a little bit more recent, that I highly recommend. The first one is Amy TIR68. These are technical information reports. 
they may not have some of the research of the full document, but they have very good updates. Again, very technical. You may have to kind of force yourself. <laughs> they have good charts. They have good charts and, and good references. Amy TIR 68, Tier 68, 2018 is a document specifically oriented to low and intermediate level disinfectants. These are products that are commonly used in sterile processing. And I would recommend for sure to have Amy TIR 68 in your library of documents. Very, very important. It's not hugely long, and, and it's just got lots of useful charts in it. The other document that's really important is another tier, TIR. This is Amy TIR 67, 2018. So both these documents came out in 2018. They're both available through Amy. TIR 67, tier 67, uh, is more related to sterilance and high-level disinfectants, and therefore it, it has separate, uh, different information from tier 68. So I do great recommend both of them. Again, they have some handy charts, kind of quick references, and of course, uh, some more technical uh, information that can also provide a good uh, sleep aid. Uh, you're having trouble sleeping, you can uh, <laughs> go through this, because they, they explain the regulatory part of it that I think is very confusing. Uh, but these low-level disinfectants, surface disinfectants, disinfectants that you use on the floor and the counter and uh, maybe to wipe something off, those low and intermediate level disinfectants are regulated by the EPA, and that's where that EPA number comes in. Whereas the high-level disinfectants are regulated by the FDA, and they don't usually have any kind of a number uh, on them, and so it can be a little confusing well, what do I have on my hands? Uh, what should I look for in the label? So definitely those uh, TIR technical information reports, very helpful. All those documents are available through Amy. And there's also great information that comes out all the time through ISHM. So I'd like to do a little shout out here because <laughs> there, there's always great references in the manuals, the workbooks, the uh, instruction uh, textbooks uh, about this same subject. Because it is very confusing. Uh, if you're having difficulty with this, believe me, you have a lot of company. Well, great. Thank you, Peggy, for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us, to talk to us about chemicals. It was very informative. So uh, thank you very much, Peggy. Oh, you're very welcome, John. It's very important to me to support ISHM. It's such a, a, a valuable organization. Uh, I have benefited a lot from ISHM, and also as a member of my local Rocky Mountain chapter, I've learned so much from other people that I feel I need to give back wherever I can, at least especially in this little area that can be so confusing. Thank you again, Peggy, for speaking with us today. Isham Nation, episode number 26, is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code CHEMICALS. Again, the code for this episode is CHEMICALS. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, Issue Nation, and we'll see you next time.